from the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. This is George Taroni at the Library of Congress. Saturday, August 30th, will mark the 14th year that book lovers of all ages have gathered in Washington, D.C. to celebrate the written word at the Library of Congress National Book Festival. The festival, which is free and open to the public, will this year hold evening hours for the first time in its new location, the Walter E. Washington Convention Center in Washington, D.C. Hours will be from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. For more details, visit www.loc.gov bookfest. And now it is my pleasure to introduce author and professor at the New School in New York, Nina Khrushcheva, whose latest book is titled The Lost Khrushchev, A Family Journey into the Gulag of the Russian Mind. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Nina, you come from a notable family in Russian history. You were the great-granddaughter of Nikita Khrushchev, former Soviet premier, whom you considered your adoptive grandfather, and his son, Leonid Khrushchev, both of whom you write about extensively in your book. Can you tell us why you decided to research and tell your family's story? Uh, because of Vladimir Putin, I was not going to write this book, at least not now. I thought that one day I would have to write a Khrushchev book, because usually from families like mine, there's an expectation that you kind of have to write a family book. So I thought I would have to, but Vladimir Putin really changed all that, and I was... Um, uh, I found his leadership a bit of an insult to all the attempts to democratize it, Russia, first the Soviet Union, and that Russia ever had. Uh, and uh, his policies, especially that they have seen all over the world today in, in Ukraine, uh, really made me uh, sort of research the book because what happened uh, since he came to power in 2000 that suddenly Joseph Stalin. Uh, became a very important figure. Not that he wasn't important in Soviet history, but suddenly he became a hero. He was called the good manager of the Russian state, even if people were killed. But you know, we have great we had great parades. People were saying, and so I wanted to rehabilitate because Putin was rehabilitating Stalin, uh, who was deemed and known as a dictator. I wanted to rehabilitate my family. I wanted to rehabilitate Khrushchev, and particularly. Leonid Khrushchev, uh, who under Putin suddenly uh, became known or allegedly became known as Benedict Arnold of, uh, of the Soviet Union, as if, uh, as if it is possible that he betrayed the motherland, that's what he was accused of, instead of dying in 1943 as a hero in an air, air battle, suddenly it was very official version that he, in fact, uh, uh, actually... Um, uh, defected to the Nazis, and uh, Nikita Khrushchev, who denounced Stalin in 1956, didn't do it because he felt guilty that he was one of the Stalin, um, Stalin politicians, Stalin very trusted Stalin lieutenant for many of his political, much of his political life, and instead it was now seen, it has been seen as uh, just a simple family revenge because Stalin punished Leonid for being a traitor him from the Nazis and punished him, then uh, Nikita Khrushchev 
just denounced Stalin only because he wanted to avenge the death of his son. And I understand that you had, in fact, a chance meeting with Molotov, who was once Stalin's foreign minister, who called Leonid uh, Khrushchev a traitor, and that that was one of the sparks also that led you on to writing the book. And what did you, in the end, discover about Leonid's fate? Uh, with Molotov, it spark- I mean, it sparked the first time I started thinking about Leonid because Nikita Khrushchev actually never talked about his his son, who was my grandfather um, and Nikita Khrushchev's older son. Uh, I grew up with uh, Khrushchev, big Khrushchev, as my grandfather, and I was sort of wondering why on earth they never talked about him in, at home. My mother never talked about him, although we knew he existed. Uh, and he was a hero, but that's all we knew. Um, and what I really learned that Leonid was the first dissident. Uh, I call him the first dissident in the Soviet Union because everybody, when when everybody was a devoted communist in the 30s, Leonid was already rebelling against this very inhuman, grandiose system of uh, everybody surrendering to the states. Well, and uh, he was a great believer in individuality. He was very inventive this way, but never wanted anything to be uh, to ha- anything to have to do with the state. And that was a major problem with him, between him and his father. And that's why his father was always very embarrassed of him. Uh, so I call Leonid as a you know I call him a James Dean of uh, Soviet nomenclatura because he really was that rebellious, um, found very interesting, many very interesting details. For example, he and Joseph Stalin's son, uh, younger son, Vasily, they dated, uh, courted the same woman. And uh, she was in love with Leonid. But when Leonid died in 1943 um, in an air battle, as I mentioned, uh, she married, this woman married Vasily and was his one of his many, many, uh, many wives. Uh, so there's a lot of things that if I didn't start writing the book, I wouldn't have found out. Um, also, um, I felt that in the book I gave tribute to all the women in our family, you know, sort of the whole Mother Russia part of the story, because men are always uh, standing in politics, standing in the Kremlin, but we always forget that there are these great women behind them, and they never get or never had a voice before. Even today, you know, just look at Russian politics today, uh, there's never too many women uh, speaking out. So I felt that there was a four generation of women that I was able to give voice to and tell their side of the story or their version of that very male uh, political um, political system that, that really Russia experienced, not only in the I mean, I was talking about the last century, but uh, last hundred years, but, you know, for, throughout history of, of Russia altogether. So so I do like my grandfather, my birth grandfather, Leonid, very much and, and admire him for being so brave to rebel against the Soviet system as early as 1930s. You've noted that as Russia continues to redefine itself, the way in which the Khrushchev's legacy is viewed also changes over time. What do you see ahead for your family's legacy? Well, Russia tends to have this interesting pendulum swing. It goes from democracy to dictatorship. Not that democracy is ever full-blown, but at least some democratic 
directions, like Khrushchev, he was not a Democrat by any means. I don't call him a Democrat, but he really tried to reform the Stalin monolith, uh, communist monolith. So then Mikhail Gorbachev. Uh, so we, and we do go through this pendulum swings. Uh, you know, you have Stalin, then you have demo, more democratic Khrushchev, then you have Leonid Brezhnev, then uh, Mikhail Gorbachev, who is infinitely more democratic, and so on. Um, and so I'm sure that you know whoever comes after Putin, if Putin ever goes away, um, whoever comes after Putin uh, certainly uh, has a potential to be a Democrat or or has democratic aspirations. And uh, in this sense, then Stalin would go down and Khrushchev would go up, because that's how they kind of alternate in politics uh, at all times. Uh, so it would be a cycle of positive cycle, probably, for Khrushchev legacy. But unless Russia changes and really chooses its Western road that it really has been debating for 250 years, and it is Russia's road, because it is part of Europe, despite our denial that we are, uh, then uh, Khrushchev legacy is going to be very shaky because, you know, reformers like him, reformers like Mikhail Gorbachev, ultimately always surrender to the public's gulag of the mind. That's what the subtitle of my book, The Gulag of the Mind, is that when the Russian people feel that the central control, the large size is more important, the state, the Kremlin is more important that, than uh, individual choice and individual choice of liberty and democracy, that kind of the, the West stands, stands up to. You uh, did a lot of digging around and found out a lot about your family's history. Did you learn something about yourself in the process? Um, yes. <laughs> I, 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 yes. Um, I think my major discovery that, uh, that I'm more American than I thought I was uh, that is, for example, I don't take no for an answer. And when I was looking for Leonid's, uh, the evidence of, of Leonid not being a traitor, I mean, I knew that he wasn't, but I wanted to have an absolute proof because I was trying to understand why on earth uh, Nikita Khrushchev never mentioned him, never talked about him. Um, so I went into the depth of Russia, you know, 400, 400 miles 400 kilometers outside of Moscow, where Leonid died, where his plane was shot down. And it really was a fascinating journey. And I don't think if, if I were a Russian, I probably would not have done that, because it seemed too much out of the way. I had to, you know, kind of make various efforts that, as a centrist Russian, because Russians do tend to be very uh, Kremlin-centric, as I mentioned. So the provinces and the uh, and uh, the capital life, the Moscow life, are very different from each other. So very few Russians actually do venture outside and go to the regions and deal with the regions. So I, I felt that it was my Americanism that that um, that forced me to go there. And I talked to peasants, uh, the Russian farmers, peasants who used to be collective farmers and found even a peasant who uh, allegedly saw Leonid being shot down. And so I, I think I really felt like in this book I had, uh, in my American way, I, I have tried to have every stone turned and, and discover it. And I've discovered a lot of things about my birth grandmother, Lubov, who was, uh, uh, who seemed like a great, you know, communist and, and a remarkable woman 
and yet was uh, sneaky and deceptive and aggrandized all her achievements, just like the Soviet Union was. So there's a lot of connection between personal and political, and um, what I discovered that I cannot write or I cannot be, uh, I cannot have my personal life without uh, without understanding politics uh, better with it. And speaking of your family, of course, your book was published in the U.S. in English. Uh, has your family in Russia had access to be able to read the book, and how have they reacted? That's a very good question. Uh, I wrote it in English. I started writing in Russian, and then I realized that I needed a bit of a distance between the story and, and myself and, and, and uh, me being able to write because it was so big. The story is very big. It's about big Khrushchev, but also about small Khrushchev. It's about Russia. It's about women. It's about everything. And so I started writing it in English so I can have a slightly better stream of thought, sort of more linear thinking than being bogged down in little details of, of um, our Russian lives or grandiose thinking of our Russian lives. Um, I read pieces of it to my mother. Uh, I did not give her, the, I mean, I gave her the whole book. Uh, I don't think she's going to read it herself, just because her English is not, is not very good. And I'd like to keep it this way for a while, because I think my family, in some ways, they're very happy that I wrote it, because it was important to write. On the other hand, uh, because of very tumultuous Russian history, they feel that every negative word that I say about the family, not even negative, but, you know, kind of analytical word that I say about the family, somehow becomes a problem and tarnish Khrushchev's legacy because they do appear to think that we're just, by definition, perfect. And one, by, by the way, that actually made Leonid uh, such a vulnerable figure because they never talked about his, his imperfections, and so his imp- personal imperfections became political ones today. So um, I think my family is happy that I wrote it. Uh, I don't think they would be as happy when they read the full book, all 250 or somewhat pages of it. Okay, I, I apologize for this next question, but I just can't resist asking, since you did briefly explore this in your book uh, about the now infamous shoe incident at the UN. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes. Well, I put it in the footnote because I knew it would take away some attention. Well, there's a lot of, once again, as I said, no stone stone unturned. So I interviewed people. I talked to various members of my family as well. Um, They argue, and a lot of people argue, that the shoe incident never happened. That is, Khrushchev never banged the shoe, although the shoe was on the table and he may have even waved it a bit. Uh, and it actually, this information does come both from the Russian side and from from the from the American side. My uncle gives a story that uh, uh, Khrushchev's shoe was too, that his new shoes they were too tight, and he dropped one, and then it was given to him by the attendant um, after he was already seated at his um, at his desk at the I mean, Russia desk at the United Nations. And uh, he used this as an opportunity. I actually think, because I call Khrushchev, Nikita Khrushchev, the first public politician of of Russia, uh, because we didn't really have public politicians. We had leaders. And he was a public politician that he was very savvy in in terms of how to read his, to kind of, to uh, deal with his audience according to the mood or, or necessity. And so he really needed to make all his points 
that were very um, un-imperialistic and un-American to a degree. And so he felt that the shoe would be, uh, using the shoe uh, would be a bit of a, um, would, would be a bit of a prop. Of course, my, my aunt, on the other hand, says that he just dropped the, you know, the watch and she saw the shoe and he used it as an opportunity. So even within the family, there are issues. But I'm sure the shoe was on the table. He may have even touched it, never banged it, because for America it was also important to use uh, the shoe proper, the tone propaganda. And I actually use example of how bad the Soviet Union was. I use examples from the Wall Street Journal uh, right after the, uh, the that session of the United Nations, uh, it says that he, uh, I, I forgot, I think he touched the shoe or something. Uh, and then two weeks later, the Wall Street Journal, that he banged the shoe from the podium. And, of course, he never was at the podium. He, he was speaking from his, from his desk. So there's a very interesting story that it was such an important symbol of the Cold War. My favorite part and that's why even if it didn't happen, it had to be invented. But my favorite part actually is real, is that when um, later on when Nikita Khrushchev was telling that story, he did say that the shoe was on the table. He never said he was banging. He said, well, and, you know, those Americans, they all got scrambled, but they put their own feet on the table, and suddenly they were incensed with me. And the fun part is that the Austrian delegation the next day sent him a pair of, um, and nobody knows that, I actually find it out uh, just for the, for the book, uh, sent him a pair of ski boots, red and white ski boots, saying if he wants to make the point next time around, that would be the shoe to use. <laughs> well, that's a very good story. Thank you for clearing that up. Many of our listeners and visitors to the book festival have families with interesting histories of one sort or another. Do you have any advice on how to get started researching family stories? Uh, well, one, one suggestion is to decide that you really want to do it. Uh, because if you don't want to do it, that's a really very torturous, torturous thing. What I found out that writing a memoir, it seems like it's the easiest thing because, you know, you tell the story that you know, but actually it's the hardest because you know so much and it's so close to you that you either need to use a foreign language or something to, uh, to actually get through all these emotions and all this information to make uh, a reasonably coherent story. Um, so I think there are two things that are really important. Decide that you want to do it because your family will be upset with you no matter what you say and how you say it. Uh, if the family is still alive and, uh, and also keep the distance, try to find a way to keep the distance between the family story and, and your own narrative. Okay, thank you very much. And uh, in keeping with the theme of this year's National Book Festival, which is Stay Up With a Good Book, what book have you been staying up reading lately? Um, well, I, I have a lot of books that I'm staying up with. Um, my favorite writer in the world is Vladimir Nabokov. My previous book was about him called Imagining Nabokov, Russia Between Art and Politics. So I keep up with, uh, with Nabokov, especially with Russia Today. I think Ben Sinister, Nabokov's uh, novel, that is not very well known, but really a fantastic novel, an amazing novel, gives a lot of insight into Vladimir Putin's character. So I've been rereading that. Uh, and uh, a little boost to a, a Washington colleague, Peter Baker, who wrote a fantastic book about Dick Cheney, 
uh, The Days of Thunder. I just, I just love that book. I, my next book, I hope, would be about Dick Cheney. So he's Peter Baker is my role model in, in, in writing that. Thank you very much. We've been hearing from author Nina Khrushcheva, who will appear on Saturday, August 30th, in the History and Biography Pavilion at the National Book Festival at the Washington Convention Center. Thank you, Nina. Thank you. This has been a presentation of the Library of Congress. Visit us at loc.gov.